Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. We actually got a letter through the U.S. mail from this mom in Oklahoma who said that she and her husband are just ordinary folks. She worked in the county clerk's office for her husband's a police officer. But their little five-year-old boy, Ryan, for the last year, had talked about a past life in Hollywood. And he would cry and beg his mother to, to take him home to Hollywood. And this was quite hard for her to endure. You know, it's hard to, as a parent to see your child suffering. And, and he was suffering on a daily basis. So she had heard that, that if, if kids can kind of process some of this, see more of the past life stuff, that it, it can help them deal with it. So she went to the public library and checked out some books on Hollywood. And they were looking through one of them one day when Ryan pointed to a picture. There's this picture from an old movie called Night After Night. Uh, it's actually the first movie that Mae West was in. But the picture just shows a group of men and a couple of them sort of in the middle everyone's focused on. And he pointed to one of those and said, hey, mama, that's George. We did a picture together. And then he pointed to one of the men on, on the end and said, mama, that's me. I found me. Hello there. It's Light Watkins, and you are listening to At the End of the Tunnel, which is not a podcast about death, as many people who hear that title assume that it has something to do with dying or near-death experiences or something like that. No, it's actually a podcast about hope and inspiration. And the tunnel is a metaphor for that period of uncertainty that anyone who follows their passion or finds their purpose has to go through in order to shed their previous life and embrace their new, more aligned life. And so those are the stories that I like to tell on this podcast. Those are the guests that I typically invite onto the podcast. And so it's ironic because this week the podcast is in fact about death and more specifically about what happens after death, reincarnation. I am interviewing one of America's top reincarnation experts, a man by the name of Dr. Jim Tucker out of North Carolina. And while Dr. Tucker's personal story of how he ended up in that field is quite fascinating, and we're going to definitely go through that because he went through his own version of the dark tunnel, we're also going to spend a good portion of the episode talking about some of the cases that he has personally investigated. And some of them are definitely going to give you goosebumps, whether you personally believe in reincarnation or not. I think you're going to find this episode quite fascinating and it'll become a very useful point of reference for at least entertaining the possibility of reincarnation going forward. Dr. Tucker and his team of researchers have investigated thousands of cases in the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia, and he has authored a few books on the subject of reincarnation. So I'm really excited to introduce you to Dr. Tucker and to his exhaustive work around the topic of reincarnation and his story of how he got into that line of work 
in the first place. But before we get into that episode, I do want to make sure that you also know about and hopefully have a copy of Knowing Where to Look, which is my new book of inspiration. It's full of inspirational stories and anecdotes and observations that you can read in a sort of choose your own adventure style, basically whenever you need a boost of inspiration or just some additional perspective on what you happen to be going through in life. And it's available everywhere books are sold. So definitely get a copy. And if you have a copy, please don't forget to leave a review. It really does help more than you know. In fact, when I became an author a few books ago, I saw how important reviews actually are in the publishing world. And nowadays, whenever I read a book, I make sure to leave an Amazon review with a few lines about what I liked about the book. So if you could hook me up with a review, that would be greatly appreciated. And without further ado, let's dive into my conversation with Dr. Jim Tucker. Dr. Tucker, thank you so much for coming on to At the End of the Tunnel. It is an honor and a pleasure to talk to you. I've been personally fascinated by the topic that we're going to discuss today, which is reincarnation, for a very, very long time. And it's awesome to have someone who's considered probably, would you say you're the world's foremost expert reincarnation at this point? Well, I wouldn't go that far, but I'm one of a small number of people who study cases of purported best life memories. Awesome. And you all know each other, obviously, right? Yeah. 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 And and unfortunately, it's an aging field that not a whole lot of us left who do this kind of investigating cases to see if they can be verified. But there's right. still a few of us left. So I want to start by just talking about your story leading up to you getting involved in, in this body of work. I know you grew up in North Carolina, which which Part of North Carolina specifically, did you grow up? Uh, Eastern North Carolina in a small town called Goldsboro's. When you think back to little Dr. Tucker, <laughs> little Jim, did you have a favorite toy or activity as a child? Well, I wouldn't say I had a favorite toy as far as activity that I always enjoyed reading a lot, but also I'm an identical twin. So hmm. I had a favorite playmate, you know, so we, uh, Kind of went through childhood together. What kind of books did you enjoy reading? Well, I guess typical children's books. I mean, the fiction kind of stuff. Well, Wrinkle in Time. I remember that one. Johnny Tremaine, if you remember that one. The Revolutionary War. Just, uh, you know, typical children's books. I'm asking because I know eventually you become a child psychiatrist. And I'm just curious, is there something in childhood that inspires one later on in life? to want to focus on that particular field of work. As far as psychiatry in general, you know, it tends to draw people who are fairly introspective and, and kind of looking at their own journeys as well as other people. So that certainly includes looking back at childhood. I didn't know that I wanted to do child psychiatry actually until the middle of my psychiatry residency where I wanted to learn more about development and, and childhood things. So then I went into child. And it's certainly So there was nothing in your childhood itself that necessarily informed that decision, even though you didn't make it until later on in your graduate studies. Not to go into child psychiatry, no. As far as my childhood, I mean, one notable factor is that my father passed away with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma when I was a teenager. So that certainly yeah. had quite an impact. I think it led me to go into medicine to begin with. And, and also... 
led me, I think, to be more attuned to issues around life and death and grief and that sort of thing that people go through. So you grew up Southern Baptist. How did you reconcile your father's passing? Did you believe in heaven, hell, reincarnation, anything like that as a young person? Certainly not reincarnation. And, and I don't know that I had a firm belief one way or the other in heaven and hell. I, the church we went to did not focus on the hell part anyway. And so, you know, with many of us, we lose a lot when we hope that they continue on in some way. But I didn't have any firm beliefs about how he might carried on it. It's hopes that it did. Were there any lessons or ideologies or mantras that your dad or your mom would echo to you and your brother as you were coming up just about life in general? No, I, I wouldn't say that. I think certainly they taught me one way or another to be extremely conscientious and, and maybe overly conscientious, but that can be good in the kind of work that I ended up in where making sure you take care of all the details. It's an important part of what you're doing. You went to Charlottesville to UVA to do your training. Why did you choose that particular school? Well, I, you know, being from North Carolina, I went to UNC Chapel Hill, both for undergrad and for medical school, and then just looked at a variety of residency programs. At the time, my first wife and I were going through what's called couples match. And we just looked at programs around the country and, and I can't give a particular reason why we ended up ranking UVA first, but it, it looked like a good program and, and a good place to live. And then certainly has turned out that way for me. Talk about your introduction to Dr. Stevenson's work while you were there at the university. Well, it was quite limited, really. So I, I came here to do residency in 1986. Well, Ian had stepped down as chair of the Department of Psychiatry in 1967. So, mm-hmm. you know, that was a long time off. That was always 20 years. And he was still working. He had this small research division looking at things like past life memories, but very little connection to the department. And I, I never met him during training. I mean, he wasn't doing any cl- clinical teaching or, or, or clinical work at all, as far as I could tell. So I heard about him. You know, and his work. And, you know, I, I was, I found that interesting that somebody had made that career choice that to step down as chair of the department to uh, have the small research division off campus, you know, explore past life members. But that was kind of the extent of my interest at that point. Was it like a rumor among the people who were in that department? I'm just curious, like, how did you, or was it well known? His work in that field at that time in the department that you were in, or was that just like an off conversation that you had with someone over lunch and it just kind of came up as an aside? Like, oh, isn't that interesting? Yeah, just kind of as an aside. And of course, it's way before the internet, so it's not like you can look, read about your own department. But there's one attending in particular they mentioned a couple of times about Ian's work, but that was the extent of it. Okay, so let's cut to later on. You're now practicing. Yeah. You have a child psychiatrist practice in Charlottesville, and you happen upon a book that Dr. Stevenson wrote, Children Who Remember Past Lives. Children Who Remember Previous Lives, yeah. Previous Uh, Lives. Yeah, so sort of the backstory for why I was even looking for one 
was that my first wife and I divorced and, and then I got married to my second wife. Was, uh, she's a clinical psychologist and she was open to things like reincarnation. She believed in reincarnation and psychic things and, and all that. That got me curious, uh, but also just being with her, that relationship really opened me up in a way that's hard to put into words, but that, that was obviously quite meaningful to me. And it made me just love for things in life that I had not for. So, yeah. and there was a bookstore here, it's not here anymore, but called the Quest Bookshop that had all kinds of sort of, a lot of kind of new age alternative kinds of things. But in their book section, they also, they had some of the esteemed books. And I saw this one, Children Who Remember Previous Lives, which was kind of kid's overview of the work and decided to learn more about it. So I got it and started to read it. I could be wrong about this, but it doesn't seem like one of the books they have out displayed on one of the, you know, <laughs> one of the tables. It seems like you'd have to be looking for that book. So I'm just curious, were you in there looking for it? Were you in this past life section uh, of the occult bookstore or? Uh, yeah, I'm sure I was in the past life section. That to be honest, I don't remember I was specifically looking for Ian's books or not. I probably was actually. And there was another one called 20 Cases Suggestions of a Reincarnation, which is probably his best known. So I kind of compared those two and, and ended up getting the first one. So yeah, I, I may well have gone in there just to see if I could get one of his books. And again, this was a long time ago. This would have been 1996, I think. So it's been 25 years now. These are your words. You said you were unfulfilled in your private practice. And I'm just curious, you have your own practice. You're working with kids, right? You're helping people. You're in service. And I think a lot of people who have like sort of typical nine to five jobs may fantasize about doing something of that nature. And I'm curious, what did that feel like for you? How did you know you were unfulfilled? Well, part of it was that I, while I still lived in Charlotte, so I was actually practicing in a nearby community. I was the only child psychiatrist there and got very busy. And I was in a group practice. Several of us had started a group practice with other therapists. So the way it typically would work is I'd get a referral, I'd handle the meds and one of the therapists would take care of the therapy part. So I got, I was doing almost no therapy by the end. So it was a very busy medication management kind of practice. And, and I enjoyed the med work. I actually enjoy it more now than I did then because now I'm doing it very part time as opposed to doing it eight to five every day. And, you know, I so say you have med check after med check after med check. The phone messages are piling up and then you go home at nine, you go back the next day and start it all over again. Now, I mean, again, there are a lot of good aspects about being a child psychiatrist. And, and I, I mean, it's trite, but I did enjoy helping people. Or, you know, most, most patients do get better and, and all that. But it, it was also kind of a grind. So I was sort of looking for more than just doing that. That's what I learned that Ian Stevenson and a colleague at Bruce Grayson had gotten it granted to a new study on, on near death experiences. Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. 
So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. After you read his book, I'm assuming you were more interested in his words. Had you had any experiences with any of the kids you were dealing with already in your practice that were potentially tied to memories or anything like that? Or before you read this article with your wife about Dr. Stevens's yeah. grant? No, actually. It almost never comes up in the clinic. Now, I will say, and I think I read this in one of my books, it turned out that I later learned that one of the patients I was seeing in my practice was one of Ian's cases, and the family hadn't told me. You know, I was there treating child psychiatrists, <laughs> and I was treating him for ADHD, and the family didn't think to mention that he'd also had past life memories and seen by Dr. Stevenson. You know, which just shows how hesitant a lot of families are to disclose this to, to anyone because they're afraid people will think it's weird. I've got this theory that I've been writing a lot about it lately in my own work about how you don't have to look for your purpose. You just have to follow your curiosity and your purpose will eventually find you. And this could be anecdotal <laughs> because it st- stood out to me, but you actually reached out to Dr. Stevenson's team to see about coming in and, and helping out with some of the cases since he's gotten this new grant and all of that. In that experience, to what extent were you, was your invitation received or was it, did you have to do a lot of follow-up? Like did it take a lot to get into those weekly research lunches? Uh, no, it didn't take any work at all. Actually, uh, I mean, I just called them up and offered to help and they said, we may well need some, so come to the lunch. And yeah, in the meantime, they had kind of checked up on me and, and uh, what one of the nurses who was working actually on that study, I had worked with during residency on one of the inpatient units. So yeah, I knew her a little bit and she knew me a little bit. So it was, I mean, it's an interesting point of just kind of follow your curiosity, which makes a lot of sense to me. I can sort of follow your passions and, and then you'll, you'll find meaning there. And I said, but I, I was about to say I wasn't doing it to find meaning, but I suppose it's not quite true. I mean, I think with my work life, I wanted more meaning. There are more sense of fulfillment did not just want to do clinical work for the next few decades. So yeah, I, I guess I was looking for something that then found it. Also, 
I'm sure they don't, they weren't going to take anyone off the street just who called up and sounded nice. You know, you had all the credentials that they would potentially, I would imagine, be looking for me because you went to the same program that Dr. Stevenson was the head of and you were a practicing child psychiatrist. And you said you, the nurse was familiar with your work. And so it was almost like they were waiting for you to come in there. But you had to go to these meetings for a couple of years which is a long time. So when you were going to these meetings and you were getting exposed to this work, were you thinking about the fact that this could potentially be something you do full time? Or was it just like a hobby that you just were volunteering for? And you, you kind of enjoyed, you know, breaking things up professionally? Oh, I think it's probably a little bit of both. Again, I knew I didn't want to do just what I was doing for the rest of my life. And, you know, what appealed to me was not just the topic, but the approach to it. That it was, it, it fit well with me. Or, you know, it's very sort of analytical or, or, you know, it's not new agey at all. I mean, it's taking a very, it's very serious minded work of seeing, you know, is there evidence here and about a topic, life after death, that, that really interested me. So it, you know, it, it, it was a good fit for me, which I guess means I was a good fit for them and moved ahead with it. So what was the first case that sort of blew you away once you got behind the scenes in that work? Well, the first case I saw was one that's, that's in my books of a little boy who was born with three more or less birthmarks that, that matched ones on his deceased half-brother. And you know, then he talked about the half-brother's life. And it was... Yes, you know, rich in a number of ways, but it's it's also, I mean, you see what the families go through with with a situation like this. So talking with his mother also meant talking, of course, with his half brother's mother who had lost a child. So you know, you see, it's not just the intellectual exercise, but it, it's really looking at the most meaningful slash tragic thing that that a parent could ever go through. Can you just talk about that a little more as as a sort of case study of the type of approach you all take to these cases in terms of the 200 variables or metrics and how you sort of verify a claim? Yeah, so this was one that the previous little boy, toddler, really, had had cancer and eventually he started limping, then eventually found had a, a broken leg. And got diagnosed with, with cancer and started getting chemo treatments. By the end, he was essentially blind in one eye due to a tumor. It had a, a place on his scalp that had been biopsied where the, the diagnosis was made. He had chemo running through a, a central line, a large IV in his neck. And after he died, I mean, the, his mom went through kind of life and, and had a couple of kids. And then 12 years later, had this little boy where... He was essentially blind in, in the same eye as a different cause. Fortunately, it wasn't a tumor, but it, but he had the same experience of being blind in the eye. He had this nodule on his scalp where the previous child had the tumor biopsy. He had this, this odd scar on, on his neck, uh, birth bar that looked like a scar, looked like a little cut where the, where he had the chemo going in. And then when he got old enough to walk, he actually limped sort of matching the, the gait of, of his half-brother, even though, as far as anyone knew, he had no reason to do so. So with that case, you know, we want to verify all that. So we got the previous boy's medical records, which were hundreds of pages. 
And we went through them all and we were able to document not just the lesions that his mom had described, but also like making sure they were on the right side. You know, it's on the right side of the neck and the right side of the scalp and all that. So yes, an example as much as possible. We don't take anyone's word for anything. We don't have to. So a case like this with birthmarks or birth defects, then we're getting autopsy reports if we can, or in this case, getting medical records to confirm it. In addition, yeah, the, the boy talked about places and, and events that happened in all the half-brother's life, including one he, he told us that he had never told mom before about, a, I recall correctly, visiting a camp of some sort with a cousin and, and all that the mom verified. So we took all the information we can, and we have a long list of things that we go through, some related to the memories and some more general. And then we take all that information and code it and put it into a computer database. Uh, like you said, it's 200 variables that we code for. Uh, there may be no case where all we have information on all 200 variables, but we put in as much information as we can. And that way we can analyze the, the phenomenon on, on sort of a full group level as opposed to just the individual cases. And the kids are normally anywhere between, as soon as they can start talking, really, up to like around, what, five or six years old or something like this? Yeah, typically they'll, they'll start around the, the average age where they start talking about a past life is 30, 35 months. So two or three when they start coming out with it. Sometimes, of course, the parents have trouble understanding what they're talking about initially, or they'll even be making signs like hand signs, like uh, finger to the head, you know, and they talk about how they've been shot. So it starts very early. Now, occasionally there are exceptions, like if kids are slow talking, they had ear infections or whatever, then it may come out later. Or there are ones where uh, when it comes out later, it's often that something in the environment triggers the memories and they say, oh, I did that in my last life. And then, yeah, it's a narrow window. I mean, usually by the time they're school age, they have stopped talking about these things, but then they just go on with their lives. Now, what could we totally forget or not? Another question. Then lately we have gone back and talked with adults who we originally studied as kids. And a fair number of them say they do still have some memories, even though they stopped talking about them. Yeah, they've gotten pretty vague at this point, but, but some of them will persist. What's an example of a case where memory was triggered and then once it was triggered, it became like a whole thing for the kid that they played out on a regular basis? And I'm thinking of James 3, but maybe there's another one. Well, yeah, I mean, that one actually started at a very early age, started with nightmares. So I, I mean, he had visited an air museum, but, but it wasn't immediate that he, where that happened. But uh, there's one case, for instance, in Sri Lanka where the family was taking a bus trip and at one of the stops, or started saying that he had lived there before and then gave various details. And then later people went back and, you know, tried to investigate them, found in fact, the details master a job died there. So it does happen, but, but it's more typical where it's just spontaneously, the children start saying, you know, I used to do this or I had different parents, you know, my last mom did such and such. It leads into this idea of the sort of separate ways that our society, our Western society treats 
the idea of reincarnation versus maybe Asian societies or just more ancient societies. So after a couple of years of volunteering, you were invited to go to Asia to study some of these cases. Can you talk a little bit more about what you saw in terms of those differences and the way that they get handled by the families and by the society itself? Yeah, so that was in the late 90s that I went, and that was before was before we had an internet site, a website, and, you know, before the internet had fully got going. So, anyway, my point is, at the time, we didn't realize there were so many American cases. Yeah, the reason that Ian Stevenson had gone all over the world studying cases was he went wherever he could find them, and, and he had people looking for them for his places. So, in Asia, for a surprising number of parents who are Buddhist or Hindu I mean, believe in reincarnation, but a surprising number actually do lo- not like their children talking about a past life. There's a belief in some places that talking about a past life will cause you either to get sick or to have a short life this time around. And there are also times where what the child says after a while gets irritating to parents. You know, my, my last parents were much better or you know, I had a much bigger house before. <laughs> So like in India, about 35% of the parents will try to suppress what the children say. But even so, I think the difference is that they believe the children, they just don't want to talk about past life, but they believe it. And, and that is very different from many American families where the parents don't believe it and may not even recognize it. You know, they think that the parent, I mean, the child is just fantasizing or just talking nonsense. And they can't love it all. Now, there are plenty of American parents who don't do that. And of course, those are the ones we're likely to hear from. But it is a different way of responding to such statements. Also in Asia, well, to some extent here too, but in Asia, if a family has lost a family member and then they, a child starts saying that they used to be a grandpa, many of the families are relieved by that. And they may want the child to be the reincarnation of, of that person. And, and they may encourage the child to talk more. So it you know, can go either way. And, and with those cases, especially the same family cases, we do have the concern that there's been such a, a wish by the family to have the person return that it, it has really colored the case. And, and you, know, you may have either led the child to say more or maybe the family misinterpreted the child to serve. Do you remember the case of Chloe in Thailand, speaking of which? And I wanted to also circle back around to the birthmark aspects of these cases. But can you can you recount that story for us? We kind of bridge those two things together. Yeah, so that, that's a case that a colleague and I, Jurgen Kyle, um, studied a long time ago now. But it was a little boy where his grandmother, before she died, had said how she wanted to come back as a male. And after she died... Her daughter-in-law took some white paste and made a mark down the back of her neck. And then a year later, this grandchild was born, this little boy. And he was born with a birthmark that really looked quite like somebody had just made a mark down the back of his neck. Because his pale, what looked like it and you're going down the neck. And then when he got older in that talk, he didn't talk a lot about her life, but, but did say that he'd been her and identified not a lot of different things that had made hers. And he also showed a lot of gender nonformity, where he would want to wear her dresses or, or make up with jewelry a lot. He, he would not do sort of the typical 
rough and tumble boy play there, but, but would be playing with the girls more and, and, and various other things, which at the time we actually published the case as, as what was then known as gender identity disorder. And of course, things really evolved since then. But yeah, with gender nonconformity in the general population, most young children show sort of gender typical behaviors or stereotypical behaviors, really. And, and yeah, we can talk a lot about what may lead to that, but, but most kids will show gender typical behaviors like little boys playing with trucks or little girls playing with dolls. And again, they're all kinds of environmental influences. But anyway, that's what we see. But about 3% of boys and 5% of girls will show gender nonconformity. Well, in our cases where the child remembers a life as a member of the opposite sex, it's 80% of those kids show gender nonconformity. So the suggestion would be that there's the past life has had an impact on how their gender is developing in this life. And in the case of Cloy, where he was born into the same family of this person who passed, there could also have been, this is what a skeptic may think, there could also have been an expectation. So maybe they were like cherry picking different ideas or evidence to show that this is who this person actually was. But you guys have a control for that. Which is you, it, maybe not in this case, but in other cases, you show the children a couple of photographs from different aspects of their memory to see what they what they remember and what they don't remember. So maybe can you talk about an example of of that where you've controlled for yeah. for that memory? Yeah. So I mean to finish up with Sarah and Chloe. I mean you're right, of course that that I mean occurs to us. You know, is mm-hmm. is it that the child's family's expectations? kind of created some of this gender nonconformity. And at least at the time that we published the paper on gender identity disorder, there there was no reason to suspect that families' expectations caused that. So it gets complicated. And, and uh, you know, these same family cases have inherent weaknesses that other cases do not, because either that the child could learn things about a previous family member, overhearing things, even though parents don't know that they can, or that the parental expectations that do shape the child's behavior or the statements. But most of our cases don't involve safe families. And as far as the photographs that you talk about, so we've been able to do more of that lately, do photograph tests because we we're learning about cases earlier than we often used to. So with the American cases, uh, Ian would hear about cases, but it would often be say 20 years later where the parents learned about his work and they wrote him to say, you know, we'd like, Adult child was, was grown up. He, he did this or said that. But now, of course, if a child is talking about a past life, parents do a Google search and, and find out about us and derite us. So when we catch kids that are still young and still have these memories, what we try to do is show the control picture test where, for instance, one recent one is a little boy who remembered a life of death in the Vietnam War remember being an American soldier in the Vietnam War. And he told his mother, he gave a last name in, in the state where he said he was from. So she went on the v- Vietnam Memorial website and was shocked to see that there was the guy with that name. And it's, it's an unusual name that was still in Vietnam. And the boy had said he was 21, which is how old this man was. She then wrote to us. She didn't try to do any further investigation of, of this previous man, but I did. 
and found a variety of pictures. So I would show him, for instance, the high school where the man went to versus a controlled high school from another place and would ask him if, if he remembered either one of them. And, and also some people, friend of mine, pictures from yearbooks, a variety of things. And, and anyway, I showed him eight pairs of pictures. There were a couple of them that he didn't make a choice on. But for the others, he was six out of six. And there's no chance that his mom let on those. She didn't know which picture was the right one either. So there was no parental influence in this case. And yet he, he showed this ability, which, you know, if you think, well, it's just luck. Well, that's like flipping a coin. Have it come up head six times in a row, it, it happens, but it, you know, the chances of it happening are quite small. There's a, a documentary series on Netflix called Surviving Death, and you're in a couple of the episodes. And so it was one thing to read about these cases and how the children behave, but there was another thing to actually see it and to see the nonchalance with which they're like looking at the photos yeah. and just like casually choosing as if there's, there's no question in the world that this is what, what it is. It's like if, any, if anyone was showing anyone listening to this, a picture of their childhood home, you would know it instantly, right? Unless you moved around a lot, but if you were in the same place for a significant period of time, you would know it instantly. You would know the pictures of your parents and things like that. Do you find, out of the people that reach out to you, what percentage of these cases, would you say, by the time it gets to you, Dr. Tucker, what percentage would you say are legitimate cases versus cases where maybe, I don't know why someone's, what motivation would someone would have to, to not be legitimate, but. Well, I think they're probably all or almost all legitimate in the sense that the families are being honest about it. But what we often get, the vast majority of the time, actually, with the emails, is the child has talked about a past life, but he or she has not given the kinds of details that allow the memories to be verified. Now, mm. you don't name a person or a place. It's very hard to find out if somebody from the past actually matches the child's statements. So, you know, the, the child may talk with great emotion about a past life and, and may give a lot of details and, and sometimes grizzly details. I mean, right to murder and all kinds of things, which, you know, you wonder why a three-year-old be doing that. But again, without names or places, unless it's a really unique kind of uh, death, we're not able to verify. So we, we're just looking at this in the last year, we've heard from 150 American families about their child talking about a past life. But very few of them have we even tried to investigate because there's not enough. I mean, we'll do some online searching, but there's often not enough there to be able to confirm it. But there are enough cases where we do verify it that I think it lends legitimacy to any of the cases, whether they're verified or not. So if your child is having these terrible memories about a violent death and you're trying to cover them, it may be helpful to know that plenty of these cases, when the child has done that, there actually was somebody who lived in diapers and who matches the memories that the child has. So, you know, that the parent can know that this is something that they can take seriously and not necessarily build it up for the child, but I mean, that they can be respectful of what the child is saying because we have so many cases where it turns out true. You also make a distinction in your book 
when you talk about your own intent as a, as a scientist and a researcher, between proof and evidence, can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, proof is a very high bar that in medicine, we always never reach. So, yeah, when, when new medications get approved, it means that there have been studies that show there's a very good chance that they work better than placebo. And of course, we can identify just what that chance is. So, you know, the, the kind of bar is 95% chance that it, that it works, but that's not proof. I mean, that's evidence that it works, but it's not truth that it does. And the same applies to work like this. So I mean, we can't give a percentage, but we're, we're the only proof of, like, I don't know what proof of past like memories or the consciousness has continued from one life to another, but I don't know what proof would it look like, but I do know what evidence looks like. So when a child comes up with very specific details, they can only match one person who died in the past and had their police strangers to their family. Well, that's strong evidence. Ian Stevenson used to say, and other people do too, that proof as a that should only be used in mathematics. And then in the world of science, again, it's, it's about the level of evidence and not its sort of unobtainable absolute truth. Would you mind recounting the story of Ryan and his memory of, of Marty uh, and in relation to this evidence and then just the striking the details of yeah. the evidence, particularly as a younger person versus as an older teenager. Yeah, and, and that's one of the, yeah, as you know, it's on the Surviving Death series. But that was one where, I mean, these days we mostly get emails, but that was when we actually got a letter for the U.S. mail for this mom in Oklahoma who said that, that she and her husband are just ordinary folks. She worked at the county clerk's office for her husband's a police officer. But their little five-year-old boy, Ryan, for the last year, had talked about a past life in Hollywood. And he would cry and beg his mother to take him home to Hollywood. And this was quite hard for her to endure. You know, it's hard to, as a parent to see your child suffering. And, and he was suffering on a daily basis. So she had heard that, that if, if kids can kind of process some of this, that see more of the past life stuff that it, it can help them deal with it. So she went to the public library and checked out some books Hollywood. And they were looking through one of them one day when Ryan pointed to a picture. There's this picture from an old movie called Night After Night. Uh, it's actually the first movie that Mae West was in. But the picture just shows a group of men and a couple of them sort of in the middle everyone's focused on. And he pointed to one of those and said, hey, mom, this George, we did a picture together. And then he pointed to one of the men on the end and said, Mama, that's me. I found me. Well, the first one he pointed to is George Raft, a young George Raft, who you know, went on, well, you may not know, but for those of us of a certain age, but went on to, to be quite well known in his day. But the other one he pointed to that he said he had been was an extra with no lights and money. So Ryan wrote to me to see if I could help determine who this fellow was. Um, so I went out and, and met, went to Oklahoma and, and met Ryan and his parents. And, and well, let me just say, I think it was helpful for the family, certainly for Ryan's mother, that if nothing else, I, I was respectful of what they were going through, that you know, I had traveled across the country to, to take seriously uh, what they were experiencing. 
So afterwards, as we we're trying to figure out who this fellow was, Ryan's mom was writing me, emailing me somewhat on a daily basis with all of these statements Ryan was making about past life, which of course we could then log. And eventually, with the help of Hollywood archivists and, and a TV film crew, is sort of a long story, but with the help of an archivist, we were able to find out who this was. The archivist, she went to the library of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and got all the materials on this movie night after night, most of which was about stars in the movie. But then there's one picture of this guy and on the back of it, it identified him as, as this man, Marty Martin, you know, which meant that we could think compare what Ryan said to Marty's life. And, and it turned out that even though I really thought it was unlikely this, this extra had had this dramatic life that Ryan was describing, Marty Martin did. So Ryan talked about dancing on stage in New York and, and Marty had danced on Broadway. And he, then he said he went to Hollywood to work in the movies, which Marty Martin did mostly work on, on dance in the movies. Said that he had been uh, worked for uh, an agency where people changed their names, and, and Marty Warren started a successful talent agency. Said he had this big house with a swimming pool, and and that this street name had either the word rock or melt in it. And Marty Martin lived on North Roxbury. Talked about sailing on ships and then seeing Paris, which Marty Martin did with his with his wife. And Ryan also said that. One day he said he didn't know why God wouldn't let you give it the 61 and then make you come back again as a baby. And Morning Morris' death certificate, he died in 1964. His death certificate said that he was only 59, but his daughter and his stepson both said, in fact, it was 61. So I looked into it and found a passenger list, three census records, and two marriage listings that all gave ages that meant, in fact, Morning Martin was 61 when he died. So Ryan was right about that, even though the death certificate said 59. So altogether, we were able to verify that over 50 of Ryan's statements matched with Marty Martin's life. But few were off, and then many more were unverifiable. I mean, there were little details about daily life, which, you know, that long ago, we weren't able to verify about 55 of them would work. And at the time, there was nothing on Marty Martin on the internet. Eventually, now people have actually filled in some of the information after this case got some some publicity, but there's no way that, that Ryan and, and his family found out anything about Marty Martin through some sort of surreptitious means. It's fascinating just the level of detail. And there's another one that I from the book that I wanted you to go into. But as you were talking, I was just kind of curious around or you, you think about scientific research and and who's funding this stuff? A lot of times, you know, you have pharmaceutical companies and, you know, people who want to kind of make money on the back end in some form or fashion. And I'm just wondering, what is the funding like for this kind of work? I mean, can you just hop on a plane at any time and go and do some investigation? Or is it, does it have to be something that gets planned out? You have to fundraise to go and, and meet up with someone in Sri Lanka or wherever? Well, not exactly. I mean, we don't do uh, bake sales for for drugs, but the <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we fortunately had a number of donors over the years who have been generous who believed in this work and supported it. Starting with Ian Stevenson, and the only way he was able to form this research division was a man named Chester Carlson, who had been at the Xerox process, gave a lot of money to the university. 
And and we continue with that. We're I mean, we occasionally get grants for this work, but it's mostly donors who are intrigued by this work and you know respectful of it and, and they help fund our work. How much of your time gets spent verifying or processing a, a single case that seems very promising? It varies. And of course, now we can do a lot of that work at our desk, you know, on the internet, you know, like with that Vietnam case where eventually I was able to learn quite a bit about this man who had died in the 1960s. But I mean, it's usually just one trip to the family. But then again, we can connect about various details that come up, you know, just by email now. But it's, you know, um, sometimes the interviews actually, depending on kind of case, don't even take more than couple of hours, but they kind of the work starts and you know, trying to sort out all the details and then how much of them to be verified. Let's say Marty Martin's case, Ryan comes out in his kindergarten years as potentially the reincarnated father to this daughter or his uncle to his niece. They're still around and Ryan's now a teenager and really doesn't remember much. And and you even wrote that usually after the age of six or seven, they completely forget and they go on to live normal lives. But does that place any kind of pressure I'm wondering on either the kids or the family just kind of thinking? Because, I mean, if you hear that level of detail about your family, that's all mostly accurate. I mean, you had like 50 something markers for... Ryan's case that kind of matched up. It's hard to deny something like that. And I don't know if I'm what, what I'm, I'm, I'm asking if it gives closure to the family or if it puts pressure on a kid. I'm just wondering what, what have you seen in relation on both sides as the years pass? Do people just kind of move on or how does it, what, what happens? Well, it can really vary. And I mean, there are some times where the previous family doesn't believe it. But often they do, and especially when the child is really young, they will want to have a relationship with the, the child's family. And sometimes they do. So they'll be, you know, they'll, I'm thinking more in agent here, but they'll have various trips back and forth. Sometimes even after the child has moved on, it doesn't particularly care to see the previous family anymore, but, but they're still wanting that connection because they build a connection to their, their loved one who died. Yeah, like in, in Ryan's case, where the TV series, as a 16-year-old, or I guess he was 15 when they filmed it, but as a 15-year-old, meeting with Marty Warren's daughter and, like say, his niece, I mean, it's, it's too late. So, you know, it can be, I think, kind of frustrating for the previous family in that case that they really want to feel this connection and I a mean, connection to their lost lovely, but... The kid's not in that place anymore. So, yeah, it can be unsatisfying to them. Another example of that connection and going back and forth is from the book. You talked about Kendra and Ginger. Can you recount that story? Because I thought that was really, really interesting. Yeah, I mean, that was one where it's unusual in our cases that the girl, well, when she met this coach, she felt an immediate attachment to me and was, was much more friendly and loving with her than she was to play with strangers and started to say that she had been 
in Ginger's tummy and, and that had gone through an abortion. And eventually it turned out that the coach did confirm to her mom that in fact, she had had an abortion, but the attachment became incredibly intense, both for the coach and for the child, where the child has then spent a couple of nights a week at that judge's house. And, you know, I mean, I understand certainly that the wish to maintain that connection is not necessarily what the child needs in their development in this life. And, and eventually the, you know, the girl's family had a falling out with, with the coach and severed contact which I think is probably best for the child. So, yeah, sort of like with I say to parents in general, certainly be open to what the child is saying, be respectful. But you don't want to get overly focused on the past life because you know, don't want to interfere the experience of this life. Yeah. And sometimes people can't, I mean, it is really interesting and, and, and meaningful, but sometimes I think people get a little to focus side and need to let the child just be a child and, and enjoy their life. If you're a parent listening to this and you suspect that your child may be displaying some sort of past life memory, is there anything that they should do or shouldn't do to create a safe space for that? Or are like a few questions that they should ask to verify? whether or not this is actually what this is. Yeah, and we've got a short column of advice for parents on our website. But yeah, as far as what they should do, well, one thing we encourage people to write down the child statements. Yeah, so that's setting a written record for us in, in case it can be verified. But most of the children recall a death by some sort of unnatural means, murder, suicide, combat, accident, that sort of thing. And yeah, those memories can be troubling to the child. So if the parent can be respectful of that and say, you know, I understand that you remember that, but now you're safe here with us and, and really try to emphasize that, that the past is the past and that, you know, things are going to be different this time around. That can be helpful. I mean, and particularly in the Asian cases, often the children have gone to the previous place, seen the previous family. And then they tend, you might think the intensity of the memories would grow, but they, it actually tends to lessen. I think partly because their memories are validated. You know, they, they don't have to keep struggling to convince people because there it is. They see it themselves, but they also see that life is going on, moved on. And, you know, families are grown older and have their own lives. So in the same way with, with parents in general, just emphasizing that those memories are behind them. And this time they're all going to be, families going to be safe together and not have a good life this time. We don't encourage people to ask a lot of pointed questions. I mean, it's awfully tempting to try to find out what A is. But the, the concern about it, asking a lot of pointed questions, one, it may upset the child. But two, they may start just making up answers. It's better for the most part, it can kind of come spontaneously. But, you know, when the child is in that zone of wanting to talk about these things, you know, certainly asking open-ended questions of what else you remember or, yeah. That must have been harder or whatever, letting the child talk. And again, yes, in they remember what their name is or where they lived or whatever. I mean, that, that's very helpful for us. And if it's accurate information. Going back to what I saw in the show with this case of Atlas. And when he was recounting, he was a young white kid. He was recounting this past life as a young black child who died on the playground. 
And I'm just curious, are there any commonalities in terms of like people taking on new ethnicities or the same ones? I know you said they can cross genders. I know that most of these reincarnated cases are from their last life was less than two years before the death was two years before. What are some of the other commonalities that you've seen? Well, as far as ethnicity goes, the kids in a lot of the places where we've studied cases, they're not a whole lot of necessarily different ethnicities. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you a melting pot, but in, in say, I mean, I don't know, Thailand or Burma or whatever, I guess maybe there are groups, but I mean, for the most part, people, we, the kids would call alike in the same country, often fairly close by. I mean, here in the States, we've had some, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of miles, but well, usually it's fairly close. So but the way I interpret that is that for intact memories to come through, yeah. typically things haven't gone too far. I mean, yeah, it's usually in the same country, it's often same geographical location near near geographical locations often fairly recent life so it's it's not for attack memories to come through it's not something worse typically on the other side of the world but again with the american ones i mean unless we can identify the previous person we we don't know what race they were but i mean sometimes children a white child would say that was when i had brown skin or you know something like that but the short answer is you know we don't know a lot about that I think it's fascinating. I mean, I've been studying sort of spiritual texts for many, many years. And, you know, there's this whole idea of obviously karma and just sort of the evolutionary aspect of living and experiencing all sides of humanity. And I know you're not a huge fan of past life regression in terms of any kind of proof or or any sense of verifying or validating it. But have you read any of uh, Dr. Michael Newton's work? Journey of the Souls and yeah. all of that. Yeah. I consider myself to be a skeptic. And one thing I, I appreciated about what I could gather from reading, you know, just it's the one thing to do the research, another thing to read someone else's report of their research. But one thing I appreciated from his books, particularly Journey of the Souls, is he seems to present it in a relatively objective fashion. So, you know, it's all transcriptions. You can see the Q&A that he's having with his clients in his office. He's done thousands of cases, all of that. And he, he said that he doesn't, he tries not to lead the patients and say things like, okay, now do you see a white light? Are you floating? He just goes, tell me what's happening now. And now what are you experiencing? And he's seen a lot of overlaps in people's reports. So yeah, just from my own personal interest in these kinds of things is just interesting. The implications, all of the implications that I'm sure youth also pondered about and, and wondered about, you know, in terms of life after death, is it just these kids or is everybody experiencing this? And so I'm just curious, like behind the scenes, when it's you and your colleagues talking about these cases, is it purely scientific or like you have your own sort of biases and, and you're kind of operating within those and you're aware of those or, or, or what is your experience like behind the scenes? Well, I suppose we all have biases of one sort or another. I mean, sure. sometimes, you know, you hear something and think, well, that's just kind of too far out there for me. But, but we're, you know, we're not coming at it from any particular spiritual outlook. Um, and I identify now in the groups are uh, spiritual, but not religious. And, and yeah, the, we're in it trying to figure it out for ourselves, you know, trying to determine for ourselves well, what's what's going on here. So I, you know, it's not what I tried to confirm a previous view. It's it's trying to see 
kind of where the, the evidence takes us. I mean, again, we all have particular slants on things, but as much as possible, they, they really are not particularly part of this war. Some of the oddities that have been reported are kids going for cigarettes and alcohol that they used to consume in their previous life. No. So you have these little six-year-old kids, you know, tapping the beer bottle in the same way that they used to tap it in their old life to get the last little drop of beer out. Are there, are there any things that you just see that you just think are completely bizarre like that? Well, you know, now that you say it, maybe I should view that as bizarre, but it's just, yeah, I mean, these, these kids have a variety of behaviors that seem to be linked to the past life. And, and it includes if the previous person's a heavy smoker or drinker, that, that the child will still want those things. And yeah, I guess that is a little odd. But, you know, or you can see in their play, sometimes compulsively doing things that the, there's nothing of their environment that might lead them to it, as far as, you know, occasionally grisly play, like uh, a child, I feel like they're hanging themselves or whatever, but it's, it's usually more the occupation. But, but even then, you know, like one particular case, this kid played up being a biscuit shopkeeper. I mean, for hours and hours on end and I'm like, that's like, that's what the guy did, but, but, you know, why the, the, the child is so focused on that in, in some sort of, explain it in some sort of ordinary way, you know, that's a challenge. So with the behaviors, I mean, it's not firm evidence as much as recalling the name and, and you know, where you're from, but it's still, it becomes part of a picture that, that at times would be quite persuasive. How would you interpret all of this? Let's say you had to give a sort of spiritual explanation. What would you say? Well, I, I can't really give you a, kind of a pithy answer to that. I mean, I think well, what all this work has led me to do is look at sort of the bigger picture of what existence is or what it means. You know, because you can't just map these cases on sort of a typical Western understanding of, of reality that, you know, physical matter is all there is. I mean, that, that doesn't work in this case. So, you know, with the level of evidence, okay, well, I've even since of it, and I've eventually come to believe that, and this sort of shares with certainly physicists as well as various spiritual traditions, but that consciousness really is the core reality and, and this world that we experience, but basically building blocks in the world, I, I think are not, you know, particles and waves or whatever, but really are observations and, and knowledge, you know, become more of an idealist where it could be mind is, is really at the core of everything. You know, with that, you look at these cases and it's kind of a series of observations or experiences that for whatever reason have continued from one, one like to another. It seems to be the same stream of consciousness or same stream of, of experiences. Why that happens in these cases, you know, not in, for all of us as far as we know. I mean, that we don't know, but that's kind of my take on all of this at this point. So there is this, I mean, we don't use the term spiritual, but of course there are all sorts of connotations with that. But there is this piece of us, this mind piece or consciousness piece that seems to be at the core of who we are. And at least in these cases, does not seem to be limited to just the lifespan of brain or the body, but it seems to, to be more primary than that. And, and it's continued through multiple lifespans. Has there been 
an evidence-based explanation for deja vu outside of like being a child. Let's say as an adult, we've all experienced it. You go to a place, you feel like you've been there before. Have you seen anything or come across anything that? Well, I mean, there are neurological, neurological explanations. I mean, it sort of depends on what you mean by deja vu. And yes, I mean, I, I think most of us, maybe all of us have that experience where it feels familiar to us. And like, we'll be in a conversation. We can't quite say what's coming next, but it feels like we've experienced it before. And there may well be a neurological explanation for that. Now, one for people that are a place they've never been and are able to identify things, you know, like some of these children have done. I mean, that's literally deja vu, right? As far as seeing before. And of course, can't imagine a neurological explanation for that. So, you know, with a lot of this, I mean, Again, with medical explanations, they are, there's not necessarily free, but that's sort of where the evidence or the logic takes people. So neurologically, as far as whether somehow an impression sort of gets ahead of, of the conscious awareness or whatever, it creates this sense that, that you've experienced it before would explain the simple cases, but, but not the, uh, the vivid ones. And after coming across so much compelling evidence that there is potentially, at least some people experience reincarnation. What else professionally are you wanting to see in this field? What would you like to see more of? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I would like to see greater awareness on sort of the abilities of mind to this separate from the brain, either after death or things that it can do. So parapsychology, which a lot of people think there's nothing to it because they've been told there's nothing to it. And yet there's tons of evidence uh, about particular abilities with with telepathy or, or premonitions or various things. And, and uh, so it would be good to, to see people become more aware of that war. What's your take on destiny? Do you have one? I don't have a firm take on it. You know, is all this planned out? Did we kind of, and you know, there are people who talk about you just kind of have a contract when you enter a life and, and uh, you fulfill it. I don't have strong feeling one way or another about that. I think we may all have sort of a path that kind of is the best fit for us, but, you know, we may get off of that path or we may choose not to follow that path. So in that sense, we don't reach our destiny, but I only have a sort of general thoughts on it. And your first book in this work was, was it Return to Life? Uh, the first one is called Life Before Life. Life Before Life. Yeah. Follow up what's returned to life. Life before life was the one that you were sending out all the query letters to see about getting an agent and a publisher. Can you just quickly share that story? So I think it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So to be perfectly honest, when I read any of Stevenson's books, I thought I'm, I'm never going to be able to equal this. But, you know, could I write a different kind of book? You know, write one to make the general public more aware of this work. So, I just learned that you write up a book proposal and you, you send out query letters to agents. So I, I looked at books and sort of the same general feel. Most people acknowledge their agents. So I, I sent out a variety of query letters. And one of them I sent uh, was to an agent, Patricia Fenderloon, who got my letter and I guess got my proposal. Now, now it's been so long, I'm blocking out the details. But as luck would have it, one of her other authors had just been telling her about the work at UVA and with, you know, with Dean Stevenson, she gets my proposal 
And again, as luck would have it, she then had a, a lunch scheduled with a friend of hers who was an editor at St. Lawrence Trust. She takes the proposal with her and had her sold on the idea. So I essentially had a contract before I even knew about it. You know, so she, I was happy to, to hear that. So, you know, how do you, what do you make of that? Why well, you can decide I was just lucky that, you know, pieces all fell together. But when things like that happen, yeah, you do kind of wonder about destiny and, and how would that work? I didn't cause her to have this other author who knew about our work and was telling him about it and I'd telling her about it. And then I didn't cause her friendship with the editor, but somehow all the pieces fit together so that it worked for me and, and, you know, sort of helped me on the path that I was trying to get to. So people can make of that what they will. And I'm sure, I mean, I'm not saying there's anything paranormal about that or, or even that unusual. I mean, I think we've all had situations where the pieces fit together in a way that, that take us in a path that we're very glad to be on. And again, well, make your back. No, it reminds me of the Einstein. I don't know if Einstein actually said this, but he is attributed as saying, you can either believe that nothing is a miracle or that everything mm-hmm. is a miracle. And when you think about the implications of your work and, and whether there is life after death and or whether we all come back and maybe some of us remember it and some of us don't remember it. I just think it's really interesting to be on the front lines of that sort of research. And, you know, there's this guy called, uh, his name is Dr. Herbert Benson, who was one of the first researchers and scientists to really in-depthly study meditation back in the 1960s and 70s. And what was interesting about his work when I read a lot deeper into it was that he, even though med- he saw that meditation was, was particularly transcendental meditation, was having all these really amazing changes in the parasympathetic nervous system, things that he had never seen before. And he was a, he was a, he was a researcher of stress and the, the fight-flight reaction. And so he saw that meditation could take somebody to the exact opposite direction. And so it was literally the most powerful method for relaxing the body that he'd ever come across. But he refused to learn meditation or practice it because he wanted to maintain his objectivity, <laughs> which I thought was impressive. I thought that was pretty impressive because it must have been very enticing. And I'm just, I'm imagining in your line of work, it is enticing to lean into the sort of confirmation bias of, yeah, we're all one. Everything is, you know, connected. There is destiny. I've seen enough. I'm sold. But yet you still maintain this sense of objectivity. Is that difficult for you to do? Not really. I mean, my makeup is that, you know, I continue to question everything. You know, there are some people who are 100% sure of everything. And then there are those of us who aren't really 100% sure of much. And, you know, I fall into the latter category, which, you know, is, I think, lends itself to the work, to be sure. Now, I don't know that I'm self-sacrificing as Herbert Benson in that case. I mean, it, you know, if you do all this work and discover sort of the relaxation response can, can profoundly change your life, you tell you do a lot of good so you can keep studying it. I mean, good for him, but, well, sort of good for him. But I admire the commitment to the work. But, you know, I think with, with our work, it's not that hard because I don't remember a past life. And, you know, I'm not trying to verify that I ever had a past life. So then when we get these reports, I'm very curious. I, I have an open mind completely about what is the level of evidence that, that this case 
provides for a connection past life. And that's what we tried to determine. You've also said that you ideally would love to have more American cases. Why is that? For a couple of reasons. One, there are these potential cultural confounds with, you know, if, if everyone around you believes in a past life, you know, it does make it more likely that people may either overinterpret what the child says or the child may start thinking they'd had a past life and, and sort of come up with memories. Whereas with our cases, I mean, most of the American families did not believe their incarnation before their child started talking about a past life. And of course, our culture doesn't believe them. From a scientific standpoint, it, it's a cleaner phenomenon here than it would be in other places. In addition, I think it can be more persuasive that something out of the ordinary is going on. You, know, you, you can't just dismiss it as something that happens on the other side of the world among you know, people who believe in reincarnation, but it, you know, it's happening down the street. So I, I think that may help open people's minds more to this phenomenon. And yeah, yes, we do want to keep studying American cases. And yeah, if we had 50 cases as strong as there just two or three, then it would be very hard for people, I think, not to seriously consider them. If someone is listening to this and they think possibly, or maybe, I don't know if some people may wish their child was special in this way. <laughs> is there any sort of preliminary screening? that you said you said there's a list on your website that they can go to as a sort of a way to kind of determine whether or not this is something that you guys could work with is that the first step well, that they would take well, let's go down it is often not a pleasant experience for the child or the family so i mean i get that people would be curious but if a child is not really over past life they are probably federal not prevailing it so uh, yeah because so many of the mirrors that come through are upsetting and mm. feeling like you've lost your family or that you have another home or what, you know, those things are difficult for children to process. So, um, I, I and I, I remember you, yeah, you also said in the Marty episode that one of the things that he recall, recounted was that he wanted to live his life in a better way, in a different way. He wanted to be less, I can't remember exactly. Well, what he, less materialistic, really. Less but, materialistic, yeah, he, yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, he felt like he was not greedy in this life and maybe he had been previously. So I suppose in that sense, perhaps was helpful to him in his development that he could see, I want to be better than that this time. But he also, you know, he suffered a lot. I mean, he, he had a, a lot of ties before he was very upset. I'm assuming you, you feel fulfilled now in this line of work. How does that feel different to what you were doing before in child psychiatry? Just in you and your body and your in your day-to-day? Because -day. I, I just want people to understand the differences, at least from your perspective. Well, I actually like the meds I have now where I'm, I'm doing work in the clinic where we're helping people. And since I'm not doing it either day, I, I can appreciate it more. And, and, and I think I actually probably do a better job. I mean, I think I'm able to connect with the families more and help them through what they're going through. But then I also get a look at the kind of big picture and, and you know, these, ask these big questions and, and try to explore the answers. Uh, and I enjoyed the writing part of it too. So it's all together. It just works for me better than when I was just doing clinical care. So I want to just do a hypothetical with you as we wind down. 
if you're, you'll play along with me. Imagine if you didn't go into the Quest bookstore, you never got invited to volunteer with Dr. Stevenson's work and you were just kind of, your life just went on whatever path it ended up going on aside from what you're doing now. And you can go back and knowing everything you know now from being fulfilled and living this life, you can go back to the old Dr. Tucker and give him any words of wisdom, any advice back in the early 90s. Is there anything you'd say about how to proceed? Well, yeah, there are times where we have a goal that we're working toward and we just focus on it like a laser beam and go toward it. There are other times where we just have to be open to what may come and, and you know, not exactly just sort of live on the, the current, but you don't have to have necessarily a clear direction to be going somewhere, you, but you do have to have a, a mindset of, of being open to what opportunities may come. And, you know, it's, it's challenging. I mean, a lot of people have sort of dreams of what they'd like to go. We operate in, in the real practical world. And, you know, a lot kind of had to fall into place where this worked out for me. If it hadn't, I think I would have continued to work for something more than what I had been. And, you know, could have found it in other ways. And, and obviously, I mean, people find meaning in many ways. And, and I mean, the most meaning I find in my life is this me of true that love with my family. So, you know, being good husband and father, now grandfather, it's really where I derive the most meaning. So sometimes it means discovering meaning that's kind of there all along and, and maybe we're not fully appreciating it. Other times it means making the changes in your life that, that you need to so that things will work better for you. Well, looping back around to how we started, I've been asking that question ever since I started this podcast. What's your favorite toy or activity as a child? And a part of that is because I suspected that it has something to do with what they end up doing as an adult. But now after coming across your work, it could also have something to do with what they did as an adult in the previous lifetime. And I, well, and I think that's, that's right. That's yeah. so interesting. Um, I mean, there was a psychologist who would focus on not necessarily child's favorite toy, but the first memory. Not that that first memory caused them to turn out the way they did, but the fact that that's the one that they remember is indicative of, of meaning now. I mean, as you look back, it's important what it says about person as an adult. So it's kind of similar with what Tory do you remember? Yeah, may may well be kind of influenced by the kind of person you became. Yeah. And I'm very honest with myself about the fact that I use very sort of generous confirmation bias in connecting the dots between what they do now or what they're passionate about now versus what they started off doing. Because I found that in everyone's life journey that I've talked to, and you can make the argument that I only talk to people who have this particular experience, but they've gone through some sort of moment of confusion or uncertainty, or they felt unfulfilled. That's why it's called at the end of the tunnels, because once they get through that period, they finally, they find their calling or their passion or they, or they lean into it. And this light inside of them turns on it and everybody who is around them can see it and it's attractive and you inspire people to want to invite you to talk on podcasts and want to, you know, feature you and profile you and hear what you have to say about whatever it is that you're passionate about. And then hopefully someone seeing your example will be inspired to do the same thing. 
all that to say, I just want to acknowledge you for taking the leap to reach out to Dr. Stevenson and in a way taking the baton, you know, after he retired and, and going all into this work. I love that little anecdote you shared about how you wondered how people would dress to go to one of these little research meetings. <laughs> you, you wore the most casual shirt tie that you had and you walked in and, and Dr. Stevenson was wearing a three-piece suit. And so in seeing you in the, in the show, I saw you were, you were dressed very smartly. So I think you've kind of found a hybrid there. <laughs> you don't have a three-piece suit, but you definitely have a nice style. So I want to acknowledge you for that. <laughs> and just, yeah, just for inspiring us with your work. And I hope it continues. And, and if anybody is, is interested in learning more about it, I would highly recommend that they start with. So is before the actual book or is that the name of the two books combined? Because that's what I got. I got. Yeah, before. that's the, the new edition, uh, the new two-in-one edition. So yeah, before has both Life Before Life and Return to Life in it. Got it. Okay. But the recent one that you wrote was Return to Life. Yeah, that was in 2013. So yeah, it's been a while. Um, okay. So before is the combination. So yeah, start with before, because you also cite a lot of Dr. Stevenson's work as well. Yeah. yeah. And yes, yeah, it's just really fascinating stuff. Really, really fascinating stuff. And also check out the Netflix special, Surviving Deaths. Well, I, I appreciate the kind words. And yeah, it's, I'm, I'm glad to hear that people are touched by the work and, and we'll keep going. Yeah. All right, man. Well, thank you so much. And we'll put up all the links to everything we mentioned in the show notes. And maybe one of these days we'll if I ever pass through Charlottesville or, you know, we're somewhere in the same city, I'll be cross paths. Yeah. Uh, by all means. Yeah. If you're heading this way, sir, I'll let me know. All right. Take care. All right. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to my interview with Dr. Jim Tucker. To learn more about all of Dr. Tucker's work, you can start by visiting his website at jimbtucker.com. And his book is called Life Before Life. And there's another book he wrote called Return to Life. And if your child happens to be displaying signs of possibly remembering a past life and you want to reach out to Dr. Tucker, he does have a form called Unusual Experiences Screening Questionnaire that you can fill out at med.virginia.edu slash perceptual dash studies. I'm going to put all these links into the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. And while you're on my site, you may also see links to my new book, Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration. Many of those inspirational stories in the book are drawn from my five years of sending out these stories and anecdotes and observations to the subscribers on my Daily Dose of Inspiration email list, which you can also sign up for while you're on my website. My final ask for you is to leave a rating or review for this podcast, which you can do really quickly. Just glance down at your phone and on the Apple Podcast app screen, click on the name of this podcast, which is at the end of the tunnel. Scroll down past the previous episodes. You'll see the five blank stars, just tap the one all the way on the right and you left the rating. And if you want to go the extra mile, leave a couple of lines about what you like about this podcast, you left the review. Thank you for that. Otherwise, I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another amazing story from the end of the tunnel. Until then, as always, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart and keep taking those leaps of faith. It is super important. If no one has told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. So do it. Go for it. Follow the heart. 
Thank you very much and have a great day. You want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.